Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Willow, revisiting Ron Howard's original film to see how it holds up all these decades later. The film was executive produced by George Lucas and written by Bob Dolman from a story by Lucas. The film stars Val Kilmer, Joanne Whaley, Warwick Davis and Gene Marsh. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah, uh, this is one of those strange ones. I think between this and Legend, those are like the two like 80s fantasy movies that somehow I never watched. <laughs> and this is, for me, the, the our first viewing. Um, ah, wow. That is, that is interesting. I mean, I thought it would be a good idea to do this with the new TV show on Disney Plus, and we will get to that eventually. But I watched this film a lot growing up, and can I share this with you? I've never been... In fact, I've talked about it many times on the podcast. I've never been a fan of fantasy, swords and sorcery, and and all of that. But I liked Star Wars, George Lucas. So there was enough there for me to, ah, let's watch this movie, Willow. So I've seen it many times growing up. Never necessarily enjoyed it, if I'm honest. And it wasn't until much later that I realised it was Val Kilmer in this movie. The black hair fooled me. I did not realise it was him. I've come to appreciate this movie more now, and we'll get into it. But when I was growing up, I did see it. was never, never really a fan. But I'm surprised you never saw it. Yeah, I think I've... Uh, it, if I did see it, it's it held no like part of my memory of any kind. I know, and I've seen pieces of it through uh, people talking about special effects, like the famous uh, animal morphing near the end of the movie. That's which was the the first time pulling off that effect um, by John Knoll, who later went on to create Photoshop, but. If you watch the ILM documentary series, um, Light Magic on Disney Plus, that they talk quite a bit about that effect because before then, you know, you had to shoot practical models that you'd have to make intermediate steps from one morph to another, and then you'd have to kind of awkwardly cut between between them. And this was the first time on screen they showed it actually more from one to another without any weird cuts or any like ghost images, which you have when you in the old style where you'd 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 fade between the two images from this to this, or it just happened real quick or smoke or something to to block it. Um, so that's all I knew except for was George Lucas, Ron Howard directing and uh, Warwick Davis, who's you know a now long-term collaborator with Lucas, having played Warwick in Return of the Jedi, the main Ewok. Yeah, I mean this this is the film that made him recognizable because I just say he played Wicket. He's played various other characters, Harry Potter, Star Wars over the years, but this was him front and centre. 
you could yeah. see what he actually looked like. And yeah, so this for me was my first real exposure. I didn't know that, hey, this is a kid from, from Return of the Jedi. But Warwick Davis since, like, he's gone on to have a long career. And of course, he's back in the Willow TV series. He did that show with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant for the BBC Life Too Short or Life Is yeah. Short. That was hilarious. That was hilarious. Yeah. And before they aired the Willow TV series, instead of putting out a trailer, it was kind of like a, a round table, or they were kind of like sat outside and it was Warwick introducing the rest of the cast. The guy's funny. He is naturally funny. But yeah, so going back to this, Lucas conceived the idea for the film in 1972. He approached Ron Howard to direct during post-production of Cocoon in 1985, and Bob Dolman was brought in to write the screenplay, coming up with seven drafts before finishing in late 86. It was then set up at MGM, and principal photography began April 87, finishing the following October. The majority of the film took place in Wales, with some scenes shot at Elstree Studios in Hertfordshire, as well as a small section in New Zealand. The film was released in 88 to mixed reviews from critics, with some praising the special effects and character designs, while some criticised the direction and plot. It grossed 137.6 million worldwide against a 35 million budget. While not the blockbuster some expected, it turned a profit based on international box office returns and a strong home video and TV returns. Additionally, it received two Academy Award nominations, a TV series that we just mentioned, which is serving as a sequel to the film, and that was released on Disney+. Plus. The awards that I mentioned there, or the, the nominations that he got, that was for Best Effects Sound Effects Editing and Best Effects Visual Effects. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, it being filmed in Wales, not overly surprised as well. There's a lot of British actors in this. And if you need a countryside up until the late 90s, you filmed in Wales or Scotland. And since you then, did not, yeah. New Zealand, which I'm assuming is where the new show is shot. Yeah, I'd imagine. You know, it's... Lord of the Rings did a really great job of showing people how great a fantasy setting the New Zealand uh, wilderness is. Um, but yeah, it's it's an odd one. This it is, isn't it? I mean, it made waves and it made money. Again, looking at the budget, thirty-five million, one hundred and thirty-seven point six. So not exactly the numbers that they were hoping for. But you would have thought back in eighty-eight that would have been enough for a franchise starter, especially having Lucas attached. I mean, this is years, 10 plus years before the Star Wars prequels. So this this was it. This is what you were getting from George Lucas. I mean, when was Return of the Jedi? 83 it released. Uh, we didn't have episode one until 1999. So... So in between, yeah. <laughs> this happened. This movie happened. I mean, Lucas, he had hopes that the film would earn as much money as E.T., which was released in 82, but it faced early competition with Crocodile Dundee 2, 
big and Rambo 3. They were the big, big. movies of, of 1988. So yeah, I mean, big and uh, Rambo three, I completely understand. Uh, Crocodile Dundee is a surprise to me. Like I, remember, I knew the first one was like quite a big financial success, but I, w- I didn't expect the same from number two. I mean, the sequel would have been riding the coattails of that first one, and then it was years before we got that third movie. What was it, Crocodile Dundee in LA, something? Yeah, or something like, like that, that, which was like. Early to or early mid two thousands or something. All I remember from long. that, Mick Dundee is on, he's on a ride or something, and there's an animatronic crocodile, and he stabs it with his knife, and ha ha ha, isn't that funny? And that's all I really <laughs> remember from that movie. But um, but anyway, so back on to this. So it was not a financial flop. It had strong international home video and television sales. So it did make a profit. But until this year, Willow was yet to return. Yeah, which also kind of works in its favor because the story of this is there's a child of prophecy, uh, blah, blah, blah. There's some very strong Moses uh, motifs at the very start of the movie with the child eventually being put along down the river on reeds uh but they also say you know the child i mean it is a literal child it is it is a baby it is less than a year old um that when when the girl grows up she will like defeat the evil queen and you're like yeah but that to get to that age the child needs to be mid 20s at least probably more likely 30 years old if you want to have a, if whatever the, the child's um, knowledge is, I assume magic because that's like a big thing in the in the movie. Uh, so and it's you know just shy of thirty years, a little over thirty years since its release. So the TV show coming out now fits about right for the time frame they kind of set up for themselves. Yeah, with with that, without going into it too much, I've started watching the TV show. I'm two episodes in, and the actress that is playing the baby or the the grown up um, is it uh, some oh, what's her name? Ilona. Ilona Durham or yeah. Durham. Anyway, I've got it further down in my notes. The actress looks a lot younger than that. She's probably maybe early twenties. Yeah. And I did feel that with the TV show, and I'll try and stay away from it, but with the TV show, what I was surprised by as I'm watching it, ah, oh, this, um, it feels very young. It feels a lot younger than what I thought it was going to be because most of the characters are young. And of course, Warwick is returning as the title character, but it, it felt like young, like, ah, oh, this looks like a show about teenagers, but there is the occasional adult. And then doing prep for this, Warwick, when he shot Willow, was 17 years old. Wow, okay. So the the first movie was literally about a teenager. Although he did have a family. Anyway, the show feels like it's about teenagers. The movie was also about a a teenager. And a teenager that George Lucas specifically wrote this film for, worked with him on Return of the Jedi, as you said, in 83. And then this movie happened. Yeah. Um, and 
I think it's a big thing of, I think we've discussed this on the podcast before, or at least just between the two of us, kids' movies in the 80s are nothing like kids' movies today. Kid movies in the 80s felt very much like they're for more the children of like 15 years old, not of like under 10. Um, which I mean, I don't know how many kids' movies I watched where people were horribly murdered and well, uh, in this, like the, the a, threats, an amount of nudity as well in yeah. the 80s stuff. The threats are quite quite scary, like you know, especially if you're watching it as a kid. So you're right, like I mean, a PG in the 80s would not fly as a PG today. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, we uh, up to Dark Crystal, like something that was always touted as a kid's movie and you watch it with a, you know, 2020s lens and you're like, they really wanted to terrify children in the 80s. I don't get it, but yeah, that's, that's where we are. So uh, I'm not surprised that it's still aimed at that younger audience it just happens to be that the 80s aesthetic doesn't translate as strongly to that audience as it used to. Like my nephews are all teenagers and they love that 80s stuff. They're like obsessed with it. Yeah. I mean, again, the TV show, it does it does play like a young adult show. I guess you could put it up there with like tonally the Hunger Games, Divergent, you know, those those types of films. Yeah, yeah we're looking at the the preparation that Warwick had to do for the film right and until the last thing it all tracks but i guess the last thing makes sense as well he had to learn a modified accent although to be fair i just hear warwick davis when i when i watch willow he had to learn how to take care of a baby i mean a lot of these scenes do involve him holding or being around a baby how to ride a horse how to sword fight the last thing, how to perform magic, which seems like odd things I've listed, but I guess working with a magician, which I'm assuming they would have had as a consultant, it would have been like how to do it with flair, like how to move your hands and everything else. But when you're just reading off the things that you had to prepare for, everything is like a, a real world thing. I mean, people learn to ride horses all the time. Yeah. Learning how to perform magic. <laughs> Yeah, and that's because the only thing I can think of that comes close is, I think for the for the Prestige and uh, the Magician, who which both came out around the same time, uh, Edward Norton learned magic for the Magician, and I know that Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman spoke to stage performers about the same for the Prestige, and the only other one was Andrew Garfield for spider-man learned with uh mimes physical comedians and magicians for those uh bungling scenes that were like distractions for both the spider-man movies ah uh, for the same thing but part of it is the cell like you know he's trying to do something like that's a small trick and this part of the, the magician part comes in the selling of that and then the miming and other bits go with the movement that goes with it so yeah it's it's not a common skill that people learn so it, and it's something that Warwick needed to learn for this not to be that guy edward norton starred in the illusionist 
Illusionist, it is. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I do remember them coming out around about the same time. The Prestige, that is a fantastic film. It's one that people often leave off when saying their favourite or going through Christopher Nolan's back catalogue. It's a really good film. Yeah, because I, I ended up seeing them both, but I had seen The Prestige first, and that was the one that had drawn my attention. Uh, and I think it wasn't until it was out on like home video that I watched The Illusionist, and I'm thinking, you know Prestige? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw both in in cinemas, but yeah, Prestige is absolutely the better one. Yeah. Val Kilmer as Mad Martigan, a boastful mercenary swordsman who helps Willow on his quest. And again, like I said earlier, never realised it was Val Kilmer with the black wig. Completely threw me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a... I don't want to be that guy, but it is like Han Solo type, but in fantasy setting. 100%. 100%. But what I think gives the, the performance a bit of an edge, Kilmer, he did ad-lib much of his dialogue, which I think that would have helped flesh out the character a little bit. But at the same time, yes, he absolutely is Han Solo in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's that lovable rogue. Um, a lot of time, essentially, in the notes, he has to spend a lot of time with his bare chest showing, if not more. It's, and which is not part of his costume. It's just his costume so loose fitting, and there's so many scenes of him like being thrown around that it's never on correctly. Um, but it's I funny. Mean, there's got, a lot. I was going to say you've got someone like Val Kilmer has the looks of a leading man. Why not? Yeah, uh, and he spends a lot of time throughout most of the movie talking about how he's like this great swordsman, never gets a sword, and then but when he finally gets it, you see the flourish, and you're like. Wow! Finally, like it, yeah, because it goes on long enough that you start to doubt. You're like, is he actually good with a sword, or is it just one of those like young cocky? You're like, I'm good with a sword. You should give me a sword, kind of things. Because there's a bit of that going on throughout the whole movie with his character. But it um, works, though, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen that many, many times, and you've got a character, and you start to doubt whether or not they can actually do what they can do. We see here that Mad Martigan can actually handle himself with a sword you know yeah who else was considered i mean ordinarily whenever we're doing prep for this you always find that the same handful of actors were in conversation oh they're looking at this person that person it's always the same names one name popped out i thought hang on this is interesting i'm going to mention it so until Mal kilmer no this is a bit kurt russell's one of the guys that you would think like yeah it's not okay i'm glad you're sitting down rick mail what? Yes, Rick Mail. He was considered. I don't know for how long, but at one time he was considered. And you know what? Massive, massive fan of Rick Mail. Have been for decades. But he's not Val Kilmer. So, no, no. So they obviously but... went in a in a more traditional direction. But they would have had to. They'd have obviously played up the the comedy side if they would have had them. I mean, this was even before Drop Dead Fred, so he'd not necessarily yeah. done much in in the US, but like we were saying earlier, a lot of this was shot in the UK. Yeah. English actors yeah, are bound 
to pop up or be in conversation. But we could have potentially had Rick Mail as Mad Martigan. Yeah, yeah, that's madness. I mean, Val Kilmer, I think it the, the character works because of Val Kilmer. I think with his uh, charisma and his like his zoning in and really focusing in into that character, like and hearing that he ad libbed most of his dialogue, I'm like, you know what? That's that's why it works is because it's something true to how he thought of the character. And this is Val Kilmer two years after Top Gun. Yeah, that's the strange part. So I mean, he was, uh, he was, he feels younger than he was, much younger than he was in Top Gun. Yeah, but he's a big gap for this film. And I'm pretty sure he got top billing as well. I'm yeah. Pretty sure he got top billing, even though obviously Warwick is the, he's Willow. Yeah. Oh, we, we mentioned the baby earlier. Uh, I've got the name here. Her name is, oh no, she's gone. Elora Dannon. Yeah. Uh, it's just a baby. It has nothing to do except be a baby. Um, just has to sit there and be an infant princess who is prophesized to bring about her Bermorders. Gonna go with Bermorders downfall. Who is prophesized to bring about Bermorders downfall. That's all she needs to do. Yeah. Uh, played by Jean Marsh, who. She she does a great. There's a lot in her character design of the uh, the the wicked uh, the the wicked queen or the wicked witch from Snow White. If I'm honest, the the head wraps over her, the crown, <laughs> the coloring. Yeah, it's not subtle, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you know she just looks like like uh, a fairly attractive older actress for most of it. And then when you get to the ending climax battle. Like there's some some purpling going on in the face. They've, it looks like they've weathered her up as well uh, to really sell that like evil. Yeah, she she really comes off threatening for that last that climactic battle at the end. You're like, ooh, the heck! <laughs> and playing uh, Sorsha, her warrior daughter Joanne Whaley, who like Warwick is back for the TV show, which is. Pretty cool. A good thing about the TV show, which I did say I was going to try and not mention, it does feel like a genuine follow-up and having the cast returning obviously goes a long way to add to that. But here, she's also younger than she is in the TV show and, yeah, plays the part well. I mean, she is Princess Leia with a sword, really. Yeah. It's got that no nonsense. Starts on the bad side, goes to the good side after being kind of wooed by Val Kilmer, uh, by Mad Mardigan, which happens because of a love potion he's whacked with. <laughs> but when you see that scene, when he sees her and you see her for the first time out of her armor and stuff, and you see her lying in bed, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, she actually is stunning. <laughs> She's that bright red hair like traditionally like attractive face and you know she's not scowling as she has been uh for the movie up until that point but yeah um it, it works they ha definitely have chemistry um and you needed someone proficient on their side because for the whole movie they're winging it like right up until the end <laughs> Do you know what? I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that they actually got together either on this film or after this film 
they were a real yeah. life couple. Yeah. So that chemistry is <laughs> is real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have these two little weird uh, mini people, Brownings, I think they call them, uh, Bochner and Rule, played by Phil Fondacaro, who I don't recognize from anything. But the other one, he's like the leader of the two. The other one, Kevin Pollock, comedian. Kevin yes. Pollock. A few good men, Kevin Pollock, <laughs> that guy. Yeah. And he's having a ball. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an odd, it's an odd role I would never have foreseen him in because in terms of films, I've only seen him play serious characters. Yeah. Well, this is back in 88. It's a, yeah. Yeah. Different, different side to him. You know Someone who pops up in this that we've seen in a fantasy film in the 80s, Billy Barty, who previously starred in the Masters of the Universe film just a year earlier as Gwildor. He's playing High Aldwin, the newly wizard who commissions Willow to go on his journey and sets the whole thing off. Yeah, and you get the... I, uh idea early in the movie that he doesn't actually have any like magic but sure enough the acorns he gives willow actually do turn things to stone eventually yeah yeah there's a lot of like i don't know what's going on like uh, and him kind of just being wise enough to pick who's got to go where um but yeah uh the evil general kl played by pat roach Looking him up, he is the mustachioed Nazi that fist fights Indiana Jones uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and ends ah. up eating the prop of the plane. Ah, right. That's the same guy. Oh, There's there a lot of makeup on him for this, but tall, big guy, makes sense, like intimidating presence. Going on with the structure of this movie, this one has a weird one. Um, this, it doesn't fit into the atypical three-act structure for me. It feels very very much like a stage play where uh, almost something given the amount of ad-libbing that Val Kilmer did, it might work in that fashion, but it felt like a lot of like, oh, we go here, we go there, this happens. It doesn't feel like as, as structured as I'm familiar with you know there's I might just be the the age of the film but there's definitely a uh student filmmaker kind of feel feeling to the whole thing and this isn't Ron Howard's first film either which is interesting yeah well yeah I mean he'd done I mentioned earlier he'd done Cocoon and this is early Ron Howard so he I mean he was one of the lead roles in American Graffiti, which I believe was George Lucas's first feature film. That was in 73. Before that, he'd done that short film, hadn't he, that sci-fi? Yeah, he'd done THX. That's the one. But before Star Wars, he'd done American Graffiti. So Ron Howard was in that. In from 74 to 1980, Howard was Richie Cunningham in Happy Days, but then he left acting to be a director. He did Night Shift in 82, Splash in 84, Cocoon in 85, and then he did Willow. So there you go. So he, Willow was his 
fourth film. Then he went on to do things like Backdraft, The Paper, and I mean, the rest is history. I mean, we all know the recent Ron Howard films, including Solo, A Star Wars Story. There you go. Yeah. Comes yeah. back to George yeah. Lucas. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, a long-standing... Um, he actually also auditioned to be Luke Skywalker in the original oh, Star Wars. I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you just can't yeah. imagine anyone else other than Mark Hamill, really. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. You know... The composer on this film, I think he's potentially, he seems to be, most things that we review, he's the composer. And I'm talking about James Horner. Yeah, and he's, I mean, I think he must have been just the your go the go-to in the 80s and 90s, but. I mean, the big guy. Star Trek films, this, yeah, but, Aliens, like, he was like. It was it, him and John Williams are well, like I was my childhood say, in movie music. John Williams, people would think, oh, he was the go-to guy. He was the big guy. I mean, he did some of the biggest films, you know, whether it's Superman, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, you know, all these big franchises. But you've got someone like James Horner that he has done so many Notable films, including Star Trek Three, Aliens, Field of Dreams, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, Braveheart, The Mask of Zorro, Deep Impact, A Beautiful Mind, The Amazing Spider-Man, Avatar. I mean, this guy, he, wow. Right, he was just huge. But again, like, whenever I'm prepping these, his name comes up so often. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I'm not surprised. Like, he's... uh. He's got to be my number three all-time like film composers behind John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Who... He's definitely, yeah, up there. But what's interesting, and, and talking about this film, his score for Willow was frequently used in trailers in the 80s and 90s, carrying a $10,000 licensing fee from MGM and Lucasfilm. So his wow. music from this film... And again, this film made money. Yeah. And whether people realized it or not, they were listening to the, the score from Willow for all these <laughs> new movies that were coming out in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. All right. So if you're going to rate this movie out of five. It's tough. Um, I'm probably going to come in at a three out of five with this one, I think. Um, most of that comes off. There's a lot of heart, uh, and like you know, Warwick Davis is the heart of the film, and I think he carries it well. But it's the the Val Kilmerness of it that really uh, kept my attention throughout the whole thing. But yeah, it's it's fine. There, it has dated somewhat, given a given the side of effects and the kind of fantasy stuff we've had since, but definitely worth the watch, especially with the new series I'm keen to check out. How about yourself? Yeah, just like you, I'm going to come in at a three out of five. I do, well, I like it a lot more now than I used to. I can appreciate it now. I like Warwick Davis. It's good seeing him here, but Val Kilmer, I mean, I mentioned he got top billing. Like He really does steal the show. He's fantastic in this, but as you've said, many comparisons there to Han Solo. But yeah, it is 
it's a fun film. Uh, you mentioned um, some of the new special effects they used in this, and that adds to it. The great score from James Horner. There's a lot to like about it. I definitely would recommend it. And again, two episodes into the TV show, I'm enjoying it so far. Um, yeah, so for the longest time, it was a movie, a series of books, no doubt had a video game, comic, you know, it did have other things, but didn't have a sequel until now. But yeah, three out of five. It is it is a good film, and it's definitely worth a watch, and especially if you haven't seen it and you're getting ready to watch the TV show. Definitely go back and watch the film first. Yeah. Well, that's it for our episode all about Willow. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.